Welcome to uh, our session here on uh, EU-China towards a strategic partnership. It's my great pleasure and, and honor to welcome you today for, for this discussion. Now, as you know, China-EU relations are something of an evolving, continuously evolving uh, matter um, as China seeks to rebalance its economy and Europe seeks to, to strengthen its relation uh, in, on a number of, of dimensions. Um, I'm very happy to, uh, to have this panel here uh, today um, to discuss this very important issue, which we at Brügel also think is a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a topic that is really of strategic importance for Europe, um, because um, it is basically the relation between the, the two or three, uh, the first and the second, or the second and the third largest economic area in the world. Um, and that relation gets strengthened through um, various initiatives currently, uh, such as the One Belt, One Road, question mark. I mean, to what extent that strengthens the relations or weakens the relations. Um, there is um, a number of um, multilateral um, discussions ongoing. Um, there is uh, implications for uh, other trade partnerships, but there's, of course, also implications for financial relations. And there's, frankly, I think, also work for comparative uh, um, analysis uh, between a Chinese financial system and a European financial system that share quite some, some features in common. In any case, this is a, is a broad topic. Um, I think this relation will also evolve uh, with um, uh, the United Kingdom um, having decided to uh, leave the European Union, and that raises a lot of questions. Um, including questions such as what if um, China and the United Kingdom were to agree on a closer trade relationship, what, what would it actually mean for the European Union? Would there be trade diversion uh, away from the European Union uh, towards, um, uh, towards the United Kingdom? And we have a number of papers publishing or in the process of being published. And uh, our, our senior fellow, Alicia Garcia uh, Herrero, is, is sitting on my right. Um, and uh, she just published one paper on the One Belt, One Road, and um, I think there's another paper on trade diversion uh, uh, that could happen if um, uh, the United Kingdom and China came to, uh, to a trade agreement. Now, um, I think the idea is really to get each of the panelists um, speak for uh, no more than seven minutes um, to kickstart the debate. And then we will have a round of table here um, uh, on the podium, and then we really want to interact also with you. This room is a little bit smaller than the other one, so it allows us to actually uh, have a, a bit more of a, of a serious dialogue also with the audience. Uh, and so let me, let me quickly introduce um, uh, our, our panelists. So Alicia is senior fellow at Bruegel, Matthew Lobner, HSBC, uh, Larry Lau, um, University of China University of, of Hong Kong, and a very senior trade economist, and of course, not last, uh, last but not least, um, Pascal Ami, I think, who needs no introduction, but who is, of course, not only a very uh, big connoisseur of China, but also an intimate uh, connoisseur of, of trade policy um, around the world and uh, uh, in Europe in particular. Um, I think we will do it really uh, in the order as it is in the program. Um, and I think that's actually alphabetical order, which is funny because we have three L's. So uh, Lamy, Lao, Lopna, but it is alphabetic. <laughs> um, but we start with Alicia. Alicia, please. 
Thanks very much, Guntram. Um, I'm going to be very brief because I do think that we would love to have lots of dialogue. And, and I'm sure that a lot of what I'm going to say is probably already known. And it's just, just to set the stage for the discussion. Um, I think the way to look at EU-China relations is very different today from what it was 10 years ago. In fact, we did have a commission, I think, an opinion in 2006, and we did have one, I think, on the 23rd of June, we were together in Brussels, uh, uh, like 10 years later, on, on what Europe thought should be the relations with China. And we've seen that change, dramatic change, from a very open and um, enthusiastic view to something slightly more worrisome in terms of Europe, Europe's approach to China's uh, policies, not only trade, but even FDI. So, so I think that's the starting point, that we've kind of changed towards a more cautious um, view of our relations with China, and that I'm talking about uh, EU uh, institutions in, in general. Um, on the other hand, though, the irony of this is that it comes as a time at a time where basically the EU since 2010 onward, uh, the EU, US, sorry, has started pivoting towards uh, Asia very clearly. So in a way, you know, our nice and cozy transatlantic uh, alliance kind of feels slightly more shaky than it was then um, at the very good times of our relation with China. So it's kind of an irony because again, we should actually be feeling more isolated in, in this context. And we still have kind of increasing, we have increasing worries about China exactly at this time. One more thing has happened since, in these 10 years of, of different views about China from our side, which is that China, in my humble opinion, as a response to the TPP, uh, to US-led TPP, uh, negotiations, uh, has come up with a what I call a grandiose plan, which is the Belt and Road Initiative, looking west, looking towards us, because that's the end of this Belt and Road Initiative. Basically, Europe in, 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 in its es in essence. Um, so it, 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 you know, it occurs to me that now, although I understand that the 63 countries in between EU and China are a lot of ground for China anyway. I mean, it's not only about EU, yeah? It's a lot of flesh we want out there interesting for China and for that matter for the countries involved. But, you know, ab uh, abstracting from those countries at, at this point in time, because these are EU-China relations, the reality is that this offers a lot of opportunities for EU. And that's exactly what we tried to estimate in, in the working paper that Guntram just uh, uh, reported. What would be the trade gains for Europe out of the mere fact that because of China's gyration towards the West, uh, although that's slightly perhaps an exaggeration because part of the Belt and Road is actually southwards. It's, it's, it's really building better uh, shipping uh, uh, infrastructure. But, but the bulk of it is really uh, the railway uh, improvement that, you know, in infrastructure all the way to Europe. So we argue that because of uh, uh, investments massively uh, geared towards this um, railway 
uh, infrastructure imp improvement, uh, Europe would gain as much as 8% in additional trade with the rest of the world. Uh, and that's very good news for Europe, but it, because it so happens that it's not directly involved in the financing of this infrastructure. So I'm, I'm not saying there would be costs related to this, but they, in principle, will not be borne by Europe. Um, and, and that's great news, uh, but it again, the irony is it comes at a time where we seem to be less receptive to the gains to be made from China, from our side. Just a twist of that, and maybe I leave it there, is that so far the Belt and Road Initiative, Xi Jinping's vision has been transfer infrastructure. That's what we've seen, you know, there's big amounts being spent, Pakistan being the largest recipient so far, followed by Russia, that's the numbers we have. Fine, but what about if they change that stra uh, strategy in, in the event of a, a successful TPP, say that this actually happens. It seems increasingly, uh, increasingly less possible, but let's see. Um, if it does, what about if China were to engage in a free trade agreement with all of these 63 countries for that matter? Some, by the way, not possible because it happened to be in the EU. Uh, there's a kind of a slight overlap between EU and the Belarus Road countries, but that's a small point. Um, it, then it would be so much harder for China to gain from this initiative because it would be basically out of this block. So, it, so in, yeah, from the, from the Belt and Road potential free trade agreement. So in a way, uh, at this point in time, we're in the best of all worlds as relates to the Belt and Road Initiative because what is being done is more akin to what we need than other possibilities, especially a free trade agreement within this uh, Belt and Road area. So for me, the point is, what should, how should Europe react? Uh, passively, wait and see, or actively? And maybe the, you know, the first, the beginning of that active reaction is look at these countries in between, let alone China. We've heard about potential, you know, free trade. Uh, I remember we wrote a provocative blog after the P PTT uh, agreement in terms of isolation, Europe and China being isolated out of this agreement and, you know, flirting with a potential free trade agreement. That would be all the way to the end of the Belt and Road in the opposite direction. But in between, there are many countries out there that are of interest for Europe. So I think Europe should take really a more proactive approach to this Belt and Road Initiative, looking at those potential benefits from uh, improved infrastructure and, you know, what else? basically uh, free trade agreements, uh, be it bilateral, be it starting with China or with the rest, that's a question that goes beyond my analysis so far. But I guess I leave it here for the moment. Great. Thanks, uh, thanks very much. Uh, I think uh, there are extremely good reasons uh, to look for a stronger, more structured uh, EU-China uh, strategic relation. Uh, there are opportunities to do that, uh, but there are also uh, many obstacles. So those will be my three short points. Uh, the first one being the short term. Uh, I think uh, we are in a world where priority number one in uh, geopolitics uh, is to avoid the uh, 
to see this trap. Uh, for those of you who are not specialists in geopolitics, uh, the Thucydides trap, which was identified by a very famous uh, Greek uh, historian uh, many centuries ago, is a sort of law of geopolitics that says uh, new powers never emerge peacefully. There's never been in human history a reshuffling of economic, hence political power, without a war. Small war, medium war, big war. And I think that's, that's the challenge number one. And we all, I think, should be looking uh, for uh, recipes to avoid. That this time, the emergence of China as a major world power uh, uh, doesn't uh, result in uh, tensions of this kind. That's, I think, a uh, very important thing for Europe to have in mind, insofar as Europe has a, a willingness to uh, influence the way international uh, order now works. Now, there are obvious opportunities uh, to go in this direction, uh, political opportunities. Uh, I think, uh, on the whole, European public opinion is less China hostile than the American public opinion, although, as Alicia said, uh, for the last 10 years, things have probably moved in a, let's say, more cautious, uh, to use your world, direction. Uh, there, is no, there is no comparison. Uh, if you want to be elected somewhere in the US, uh, bash China. That's rule number one of what you have to say. Uh, in Europe, it's, uh, it's still uh, very different. And then on top of that, there is between Europe and China a sort of cultural cousinage uh, of uh, very ancient civilizations. Uh, the Chinese uh, respect the Europeans because they're a bit like the Chinese. They have a very long millenary history with a lot of art and walls and narratives and the other way around. Europeans respect the Chinese because of that. And there are not that many places on this planet where you have this sort of deep uh, cultural cuisinage. Japan, to some extent, uh, can be in this uh, category. There are also obvious uh, economic opportunities. Uh, seen from the European side, let's assume, and uh, Guntram uh, might uh, uh, control what I say, that 10, 20 years from now, the average European growth pass is 1.5%. Optimistic. Okay. Uh, US is 3%, uh, China is 6%. So when, for the next 10, 20 years, uh, you have a 1.5 and you have a potential trade partner who has four times more growth, uh, you should be seriously interested in pumping part of this growth. That's obvious. It's the big numbers, but I think it's, uh, it's there. Uh, China's willingness to rebalance its economy insofar as it happens, and that's a different issue, uh, is clearly uh, an opportunity. Uh, uh, China increasing its domestic consumption as compared uh, to its exports is a, a plus 
for a possible uh, economic trade and investment uh, relationship. And as Alicia has always uh, already said, and I will not insist on that, the sort of one bent, one road is a signal uh, that uh, China wants to go west. For a number of reasons, uh, and it's a very complex concept that has taken a lot of time for a lot of people to come with this concept, but the signal is west. And finally, there is a sort of small base for that, which is the uh, investment agreement uh, which uh, China and uh, uh, EU have uh, started negotiating. And uh, there will be uh, a test. And I don't know the result of this test, but there will be a test because the, Ch the US and China also are negotiating a bilateral investment treaty. And whether China concludes with US or EU first will be a very important political signal. And this will be a decision by uh, the Politburo of the Chinese uh, political uh, Communist Party. Uh, it's going to be a political decision. It's, I don't know where it's going to go, but it's going to be a very important political decision. Finally, uh, of course, uh, obstacles, and there are uh, many on this path. Quite a number of them have been uh, properly identified uh, by a recent study by uh, CPS, uh, competitor uh, Bruegel, a colleague, or what should I say? Both. Both, okay. So Jacques uh, Pelsman, who is the main uh, brain behind this study, uh, is uh, in this room, uh, unsurprisingly. Uh, there are, uh, on the Chinese side, uh, huge questions on uh, the direction, uh, pace of reform. Uh, to be very frank, uh, if you look at, on the one side, the proclamations of the Chinese leadership, notably uh, since uh, Xi Jinping came to power, and the reality, uh, there is a huge credibility gap between what has been announced and what has been done. And this is a worry, because the reasons why what has been announced has not been done are purely political reasons. They have to do with uh, power games within the Chinese system. And if you look at why the Chinese economy is still where it is in terms of services, either proportion of services in GDP or openness of services, and China is lagging far behind any other serious economy on this planet in the services area, this has to do with political problems. Uh, and notably, uh, the role of state-owned enterprises, who, as we know, after the crisis, have increased their share of the economy, and which are now a very serious obstacle uh, to reform. So that's a big uh, question mark, whether what we Europeans see as the big possible price for us of more market opening and reform of the Chinese economy, where it's going to be there. But the reality is that China hasn't opened its economy seriously since it joined WTO in 2001. There have been bits and pieces here and there. You've got the sort of Shanghai free trade zone attempt, but when you look in detail at where it went, very, very thin. So that's an issue. Uh, and I think it's the main problem on the Chinese side. If the Europeans go in this direction, you know, they shouldn't bet on 
a horse <laughs> that's not going to be on the arrival line. And of course, on, on the EU side, uh, there are also obvious obstacles, as usual, divisions. And in this connection between geopolitics and geoeconomics, uh, we could assume that the Europeans are reasonably united on geoeconomics, uh, but still uh, disunited on geopolitics. Uh, but you know, if you deal with China, there's, there's no real disconnection between geoeconomic and geopolitics. Huh? So you have to get your acts together, because China is extremely good at uh, dividing and ruling uh, on a number of issues, including, by the way, on trade issues, as we've seen that in recent time. Three uh, final short remarks. Uh, a, Brexit, uh, bad news for an EU-China strategic relationship because uh, EU loses 15% uh, of its weight. And uh, as long as this loss of weight hasn't been uh, balanced by an increase in muscles, and uh, whether it will happen or not, I think is a totally open question for some time. Don't expect uh, Bratislava to give a clear answer to that. Uh, it weakens the EU in a geoeconomic slash geopolitical relationship as important as the one with China. It returns short term, uh, market economy status, this will be solved. Uh, the Euros, I think, have found the right uh, compromise, and I think the Chinese side uh, should uh, recognize uh, this. Uh, at least it will be different from the uh, US uh, solution. Uh, and finally, uh, this irritant of uh, steel overcapacity, which goes quite far in the projection of China's problem within European public opinion. And I think the Chinese should not underestimate how this has impacted their image in, let's say, the last six months or so. Uh, there will have to be a cooperative solution, and it's going to be a test, and I think the G20 did reasonably well uh, in uh, putting together a sort of a global platform, it's obvious that this sort of overcapacity issue can only be dealt with in a cooperative way, and it's going to be, I think, a test of whether brand new big ideas like the one we are discussing have uh, any sort of short-term connection with reality. Thank you. Uh, thank, thank you very much. It's a great uh, honor and pleasure to be here. Um, the, uh, I agree with uh, Mr. Lamy that the strategic relationship between the EU and China must be based on longer-term considerations and not on whatever uh, is happening today. It also must be win-win, so it should bring benefits to both sides for it to be viable. Um, I think there are great opportunities uh, for, a, for such a strategic relationship for a deeper uh, economic uh, cooperation. Um, as you probably know, China and you together uh, has a market of 1.9 billion people and uh, with GDP of 24 trillion euros, about, you know, more than about 36% of world GDP. And uh, in terms of trade, uh, EU and China together is just an international trade powerhouse. I think the two, two economies together account for more than two-thirds of world trade. And that really means that uh, EU and China together, uh, they can try to refine as well as redefine the rules of world trade. You know, it's a big enough. Um, I think the bilateral treaty as well as the 
uh, consideration of EU-China free trade area uh, will be very helpful. Um, and I, I'm going to talk a little bit about later about some form of mutual exchange rate coordination. I think they can help both the economies uh, of uh, China and the EU even more. Um, I think one, one, one topic that's high on the EU's agenda, also very high on China's agenda, is how to make the Paris Accord on climate uh, prevention and climate change work. And I think that the China is very much committed to doing this. And, uh, and in fact, if you look at the 13 five-year plan, a Chinese five-year plan, the only two things are mandatory. All the other targets are just indicative. The two things, one is poverty alleviation. You know, they want to lift another 60, 70 million people out of poverty. But the other thing are all environmental, you know, energy conservation, um, carbon uh, reduction of carbon emission, uh, cleaner air, cleaner water. Those are mandatory uh, targets in the plan. There are only two pipes. So I think that shows that this degree of seriousness because all the local officials will have these uh, key performance indicators that they have to uh, satisfy these things. I was actually joking. I said, all the local officials, when the time comes to evaluate their performance, they will have to drink from the tap water. They have to make the tap water <laughs> potable because they will be the first people <laughs> to have to drink it. Um, anyway, I, I think it actually, actually that's very positive. And I think that the UN and China can launch basically joint EU-China infrastructure projects in Europe and elsewhere. Um, they also could cooperate in scientific and technological uh, 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 activities. Um, the, uh, I think the trade agreement, if one could actually do a free trade agreement between you and China, I think it would take years to negotiate such agreement, um, but you know, one could get started somewhere. Um, the rapid growth of the middle class in China implies really a continued growth of demand for consumer goods from, from Europe. I mean, um, almost all the major brands, European brands, are household words <laughs> in China. Chanel, Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Ferrari. I mean, they are also well known. And the demand can only increase over time. The interesting thing is that if you look at the Chinese growth in consumption, household consumption, you get real retail sales. Retail sales, after deducting the, 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 the inflation, uh, the effect of inflation, uh, is growing at one and a half times the rate of growth of real GDP. You know, I mean, as consistently for the last uh, several years. And it's, it, it's amazing that even though the Chinese economy is slowing down, that this growth is consistently one and a half times uh, the rate of growth of GDP. Um, so, so I think there's really uh, a great deal of room for, uh, uh, for this. And the One Belt, One Row initiative, um, as uh, Alicia has studied, as, as Mr. Lamy has uh, mentioned, um, it, it, is, uh, it would greatly facilitate trade and investment, uh, not only between EU and China, but in all the countries on route. And uh, it would be a, uh, I think it would be a huge potential. I always uh, like to think of a Eurasian land bridge. I think it would greatly help the development of uh, commerce in both sides. I mean, one, I, uh, one of the things I always think of is that a print uh, doesn't have to have a large stock of, 
of Chinese merchandise. I mean, when things come down to a week, you just come over through the rails. And it would be great savings in interest costs, great savings in stocking costs, and it would really change the thing. Uh, uh, it would be a game changer. But what is really interesting is that it is not a purely geopolitical move uh, on Chinese side. Because you really think about it, this is the only way the Chinese West can develop. Because unless they can open this corridor, um, the Chinese West will always you know, export imports through the Chinese East Coast. And uh, you know, Shanghai will become more prosperous, which is all right, but the West can never become uh, prosperous. I think that I think that we really need to think of that. Um, I think agricultural trade is another area, great potential growth between uh, uh, China and and the and the EU. Um, uh, in fact, China shares the EU's concerns on genetically modified modified crops. Okay, and same same sort of reservations. Um, I, I think there's a lot that can be done uh, given the excess potential excess capacity here and China's huge demand for food products. And, uh, you know, it, it's just a... Uh, now, on the bilateral investment treaty, um, I think it would it, it be uh, extremely useful for the both sides. Um, I never thought about whether China and the U.S. or the China uh, and the EU should come to should have, should have BIT first. But I think it would probably be easier for EU and China to have a bilateral investment treaty. Because I think the US is very much interested in investment in financial services. You know, that is the key. You know, and, uh, and also uh, maybe in uh, uh, Federal Express, you know, sort of delivery service. You're mostly on the service side, not on the, uh, uh, not on the, the production, the manufacturing side. And I think EU would be much more uh, interested in investment in, in the manufacturing side. And that's why I think it's, it's actually easy, you know, probably gonna be an easier um, um, a BIT to, to do. But I think at the end, um, I think there will be two principal elements. One is national treatment, um, and the other would be a negative list. Is rather than a positive list. A negative list, I mean, it could be different between the EU and China, but this would be a list of industries in which uh, you know, for example, 100% foreign ownership would not be welcome. Right? I, mean, I think it's much better to have it out front <laughs> than, than to have the review later uh, to turn it down. I, I think it's much, much easier. Uh, China is actually, Chinese investors are really not very comfortable with the serious agree, you know, procedure in the US because you can go quite far along and then for reasons um, that may not be obvious, um, you cannot do it. But I, I think it would be great if both sides uh, can do that. And I, I hope it will also provide for 100% ownership. Uh, I, I think that would be good. So, uh, so that, uh, for example, uh, Volkswagen um, ought to be able to own, you know, their, you know, I mean, uh, whatever, <laughs> the joint venture, and, and vice versa, you know, if, if there is a, uh, 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 the, um, the other thing is it should provide for infrastructure investment. Um, I think, for example, a Chinese firm can cooperate with a European firm like Siemens to build a high-speed railroad from Istanbul uh, to Berlin and then on to Paris. Right? I mean, sort of the old 
uh, Orient Express, uh, new Orient Express. I think this is entirely doable. Um, it's actually Siemens technology and uh, used in China, and also um, uh, China can provide uh, the financing by basically buying the, the bonds. Um, uh, uh, there is a Made in China 2025 plan, which I think also opens up a lot of opportunities for, for cooperation between European firms and, and Chinese firms in, in many manufacturing areas. Um, okay, now I want to just briefly touch on, on two things. I don't want to take too much time. One is the, uh, I talk about possible exchange rate coordination. Let me explain what I mean. This is not my original idea. It is idea due to Robert Mandel. And, and the idea is this. If you have a lot of uh, volatility and uncertainty on the exchange rate, uh, it would discourage uh, trade flows. It would discourage direct investment. If you look at the uh, Euro-Yen exchange rate, the high point was around 11.5 in 2004. <laughs> the low point was probably in 2015, of 2015, I believe, and the low point is 6.5 yuan uh, per, per euro, okay? And that's a huge range. I mean, the, if you are a long-term investor, depending on when you go in and come out, uh, you could either make a lot of money or lose a lot of money. Um, so, uh, and the same as you're a trader. I mean, you build your plant and then exchange rate turns, and then what do you do? Um, I think that the, what uh, Mandel suggested the following. Uh, it's not a pack. He, he didn't suggest it. He just say that, okay, supposing we've, we sort of take 7.5 as the central rate, then when it gets to 8, all right, then, um, uh, then, the, uh, then one side will intervene to, to, to prevent it from going beyond 8, okay? And then when it falls to 7, um, the other side will intervene uh, to prevent it from going beyond 7. Between 7 and 8, it will freely fluctuate. Okay, now, what it does is to change expectations, that people know that they will be pretty stable, and they will be incentive compatible, because it's always the side that's being hurt by this currency being too high that will intervene, right? Not the other way around. Um, and, and I think it actually provides a natural hatch, a free hatch for long-term investors. You go in, you know that the maximum, you don't need to buy insurance. Uh, because you get, it's difficult to buy long-term hedges. Anyway, you know that you know, your losses are not going to be more than uh, 10%. You know, I mean, that would be the, uh, the, the most fluctuation. So, so I think that actually would have a huge positive impact on, uh, on trade. And you don't have to look too far. You just look at the European intra-euro area trade after 2000, after the introduction of the euro. You can see that actually that has really increased dramatically. Uh, right after. Now, it's slowed down the last few years because of the, of the recession, but, uh, but it actually has a, uh, a very good impact. Um, so anyway, that's, that's, that's basically a simple idea on the uh, on, uh, on exchange trade uh, coordination. But I, I think it will also have the impact of the increasing use of euro uh, in world settlements. You know, back in 2010, uh, the euro was the leading currency in the world in 2010 in terms of a world settlement is over 40%. Even by 2012, it is still number one with the U.S. coming up. By 2014, the U.S. is now the number one uh, currency and then the uh, euro has, has come down uh, and, uh, you know, to just slightly above its trade share 
in world trade. And the U.S. actually, uh, trade share is only 10%, but it's now accounting for 40, more than 40%. And I think that affects, you know, basically, someone talked about the, uh, and also uh, the possibility of senior rich and various things, that if you can actually do this, uh, it will actually have a, uh, a positive effect. Um, okay, um, uh, let me uh, just... Uh, Quickly, let's say one more thing, um, which is sort of a new idea. I think we are all worried about um, that globalization and trade displacing, uh, creating losers in, in our economies. I mean, you talk about the steel trade is an example, you know, that it's uh, actually uh, hurting European industries. Now, what I actually propose may, may not solve the problem, but uh, Joe Stiglitz and I were talking one day and we sort of, uh, thought of the following, that is, if two countries, they agree, two economies, to impose a 1% import tax <laughs> on each other, <laughs> right? And uh, so it's, it's symmetric. Um, and then you use the 1%, uh, it's a huge revenue if you impose 1% just on, on the exports from China to, the, to Europe and you export to China. You use that 1% the revenue to basically to help to make the losers whole, okay? And, and I think that actually uh, would do more wonders than, and you don't have to be protectionist, right? But or isolationist, you're basically trying to solve a problem, which I think we have never been able to solve. We know that trade benefits everybody, but we have never been able to solve the problem of how to, uh, you know, how to compensate the losers created by trade. And, and I think, you know, China and EU can, um, you know, set an example, and they are big enough so that other people uh, might, might be persuaded to, uh, to come along. Um, so let me just sort of stop here. Okay, thank you. Great. Um, so we even uh, started uh, talking about the losers of more trade agreements. So that's, that's an important dimension which I want to come back to also in our, our discussion. But let me give the floor first to, to, to Matthew. Um, to get the view from, from you and from HSBC. Thanks, Guntram, and really appreciate the invitation and uh, a pleasure to be on the panel. Um, I think maybe just a couple of points. I know a lot has been said, so I'll, I'll, I'll be brief. One, I think very exciting for, for this topic to be featured um, from HSBC's perspective, having a very strong European um, business as well as our roots in, in, in China. Um, and I think my, my three points will be centered a little less geopolitically and more around how, how the bank is approaching what I think is a strategic relationship from the, from the business side. I think one is uh, both the EU and China do need to continue growth, and whether it's one and a half to six, um, I, I think the, we had an interesting article from our CEO last week around driving growth as, as the key. Um, and I think some of the points that were made around inclusion of the green green targets, so coming out of the Paris Accords, which we're a strong supporter of, um, around driving the consumptive economy in China and, and facilitating that. And, and looking at some of the um, recent transactions that we see, it's actually quite broad-based, and I think the, the numbers were surprising. We, I looked at kind of the total China in and out, and it's roughly equal globally, a little over 120 billion. And looking at the specific European transactions, companies like Lego and Shell um, are, are making investments inward. 
And coming outbound were ChemChina and Pirelli, um, and Huawei with an R&D lab. So I think it's a very interesting broad-based investment, which is presenting kind of an exciting time to facilitating um, businesses better interacting, which I think leads to the next point, which is I do think there's a good structure in place uh, to help facilitate this. And I think about the Belt and Road Initiative, and, and we look at this, there are a number of different corridors. There is a heavy presence within ASEAN and Asia, and I formerly was in Thailand for a good bit, and I think the infrastructure there will definitely benefit from this, but clearly one of those leads all the way to Europe, and, and having structure around that assists, I, I think from the, from the banking side, around where we need to apply expertise, uh, whether it be from a project and export finance, uh, from an advisory perspective, from a capital raising. Second, which we haven't talked about, is the Remembi internationalization, which is, I think, another structured effort by China to um, provide for a, a better platform, certainly for trade. So I think an increasing number of uh, trade settlements, certainly with China, I think the number is 40%, don't quote me on it, but a large number are being settled in Rembi, which you know, if you go back just in, in recent times, that wasn't the case. I think the US dollar is still pri the, the primary mechanism for trade, but you see the Rembi internationalization effort as a, as a big driver to putting the the, the groundwork in to facilitate that. Um, and I think the third point that, that we take is really putting, uh, you know, certainly from our perspective, the clients, both existing and perspective, at the center of how we think about the strategic relationship. So, you know, it's, it's not our place on the geopolitics, but within that framework, how can the banking industry best support um, you know, the flows of capital, which is essential to a lot of the investment. And it's, you know, we look at it from the standpoint of there's certainly a project in export finance and working with those agencies that support that. FX is another good example when we think about the, the payments and flow and FX business. And actually, you raise a very good point about you know, the Remembi appreciation over the last four or five years. And it's, it's quite staggering from a from an investment point of view and ensuring you've got appropriate support to hedge so that treasurers are able to um, forecast the investment and the returns that, that shareholders are looking at. Advisory having appropriate um, capabilities to support both uh, you know, European companies going in, so the Legos of the, like, what, what do you need? What expertise do you need on the ground um, when you're building a, a joint venture or a plant? And conversely, when uh, Chinese co companies are coming outbound. And I, I, I do think, I, as I reflected on kind of the, the brief around both in and out, you know, was left with the questions around how can we best support businesses on both sides in driving that investment um, within the framework of, of, of what's established, you know, identifying any roadblocks from an investment point of view. Um, and, and really facilitating better dialogue. And I think we've played a fairly active role, certainly with the state visits this way. I think we're, we're, we're privileged to support those. Um, but, but, but providing the availability of expertise on, on, on both sides, because underneath the, the framework of the strategic relationship are corporates that are driving growth, creating jobs, uh, and I think we see it as the the job to provide that infrastructure uh, to facilitate. 
Um, I think there's a lot to do. It's an exciting time, and you see, I, we look at this quite closely uh, on a regular basis, both with our Asia teams and our European teams, and we see quite a healthy pipeline of business going both ways, and I think that's the exciting thing. It is, it is not just one-way business. It is really both, and I think the, the public transactions that I showed show that it is broad-based and it is a two-way flow, and I think that has to be at the center of uh, the future that we look for. So I'll stop there. Yeah. No, 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 thank you. So I, I want to get Pascal react to a few points that, that were said, said here on the panel, and perhaps we start from the the investment dimension and the bilateral um, investment uh, investment agreement that is being uh, being discussed and negotiated. You heard that Larry uh, uh, was was mentioning that, uh, saying there could be some benefits, and you heard also Matthew saying, really, the flows go in both directions. Um, of course, the big concern um, is is the question of reciprocity. I mean, will uh, uh, both sides um, have the right to uh, essentially own, fully own companies um, and take really ownership of that company? And what safeguards are in place to make sure that that ownership um, gets protected, that intellectual property rights get protected, and so on? So, so what would you be, your, your advice be on the European side? I mean, how, how would you, you go about this, this very delicate topic um, and how would you balance that uh, against other concerns? I mean, that's the very purpose of a bilateral investment uh, treaty uh, is to establish uh, reciprocity in where, how you can invest in uh, your partner's country. No, I won't enter into too many details. I very much agree uh, with Lawrence that the best way to do that is with negative lists, i.e. Article 1, it's free. Article 2, but in uh, the following, and then you have 150 pages of exceptions. Uh, and exceptions, are perfectly legitimate, and the question is, uh, at the end of the day, whether once you've listed your ex exceptions, it's worth signing a treaty that will really open investment given the number of exceptions. And there will be lots of exceptions on defense, on terrible things, So, but we're we not there yet. Even the principle of working with a negative list is still uh, in discussion. Uh, now, the overall context is uh, extremely clear. Uh, China is, I mean, what you've seen in trade for the last 20 years, you'll see in investment for the next 20 years. That's a given. I mean, macroeconomics tell you that this is what's going to happen, and it will raise whatever political message is done if and when an investment treaty is done, it will raise political problems. Uh, look at uh, what happened in the US when China wanted to buy a sausage factory. Uh, it was a sort of strategic issue, and the US government decided that you know, China could not buy a sausage factory because this is rings too many bells in the US imagination. Uh, so these things are there, and we have to be aware of this. And whatever investment treaty gets there, and I hope it's going to happen, and I hope it's going to happen sooner rather than later, but one understands that 
if you want such a negotiation to last 20 years, you can really make it last 20 years. Huh? It's a political decision to make it last one more year, full stop. No, no I, I actually agree, but I, I want to say the following, that uh, this is actually a very good time to negotiate bilateral investment treaty, because it would be truly bilateral. Because let's say 10, 15 years ago, it would just be Europeans going in, <laughs> and there's very little coming out, right? But now when it's just, when both sides want to invest outside, that is the, they need protection as well. So I think that's, first of all, the, the, the uh, make the timing correct. But the other thing is that after a while, um, you would find that the stock of investment in place in, in both economies would be roughly balanced. So, so that in some sense, you know, you have uh, some hostage. I mean, both sides would have hostage. So in the event you breach the treaty, well, you know, God help your investors <laughs> in the other country. So. So I think, I think that actually is positive, is to really think in terms of making a reciprocal, but basically providing protection to both sides. And, um, and you have collateral, right? You know? um, so, so I think that is the best thing. The worst thing is that only European investment goes into China. Um, no Chinese investment in Europe, so you have no leverage. Right, so, so I think that is really something to think about, is that it actually can be win-win if you do it properly. Yeah, just a um, minor comment on this. I think uh, reciprocity, uh, we really need to be careful with what kind of geographic area we're talking about. I mean, the Chinese have been very open to reciprocity, i.e. negative list on something as so far, as small as the Shanghai Free Trade Zone. So, you know, we really need to think beyond that discussion, and I think that's a very important point. The other one is that the type of investment that uh, Europe has in China, let alone the stock, which I agree is still bigger, but, you know, we'll get there sometime, uh, is different. We're thinking Greenfield, that's what we're thinking. Europeans are thinking Greenfield because so far, They've hardly had been able to acquire anything. Um, you know, the largest uh, investment I can think of, uh, which I was actually involved in financial institution, was a five billion investment to acquire 15% of a bank, which could never have gone beyond so far of 20% for a single investor. So that's what we get. I mean, this is the m that Europe so far can do in China. So we're thinking Greenfield, and that's a different uh, animal than what China is actually conducting, which is basically m and So the, the type of uh, problems are very different. It's not only about <coughs> reciprocity, it's about the kind of investment and the geographical area in which this will be in place. That, that's two things I wanted to mention. That's, I, I think that's a very important point and uh, perhaps someone in the audience will want to ask a question afterwards on that. but. Before, before I open up, I want to uh, also go to the um, inequality uh, issue that, that Larry raised and that I think is something one, one cannot ditch uh, nowadays when one talks about international trade agreements. Um, as you know, I think there is a backlash not just in, uh, in the US but also in, in the UK and many, many other countries against further trade integration. 
And Larry has put up this very provocative proposal to sort of have an import tax and earmark their tax to compensate for the losers. And for that's a strange way of thinking about a tax because usually taxes are not earmarked. That's the nature of taxes. But still, it's something interesting to say, well, is, is that the way to go forward? So we, we do trade integration. We accept that there will be benefits from it. But we do accept that some of those benefits, we basically take them from, from an import tax and and distribute that according to whatever keys uh, in, in our economies. Is that the right approach at this stage? Is it better actually, uh, uh, Pascal, than, uh, than uh, you know, not doing a trade agreement at all? No, I mean, let me be frank. This notion that uh, trade opening uh, was nice in the past and has become bad, tough, painful, uh, is just crap. Uh, anybody reading uh, Adam Smith, uh, Ricardo, uh, Schumpeter, uh, I'm just mentioning those three because they are the sort of baseline on trade issues, uh, understand full well that the reason why trade opening works is because it is painful. It's painful because it works and it works because it's painful. So that's something that's always been true and will remain true. Now, what's probably true is that in recent time, the size of globalization and notably global supply chains and the way market capitalism has evolved has created a situation where you still have winners and losers, uh, but winners are winning more and losers are losing more. That's the new thing, probably. Probably. Which, of course, leads to this eternal issue of uh, compensating winners and losers. Now, some countries have done that properly, others not. Uh, Nordic social democracies have done that extremely well. Uh, uh, Southern European countries have, do that, have done that terribly bad. Take the best example we have of a long-term, easily identifiable sector, which is trade opening in textile and clothing, and we have a very good scientific record of numbers, time, and we have a very good case like Europe where the trade policy was identical, which is a good scientific base to look at what happens. The difference between those who did well and those who did not well is absolutely obvious. And it has to do with domestic policies. Now, these domestic policies have a cost. And the question is whether uh, uh, you afford these costs in order to balance through various social policies, training, retraining, industrial policy, regional policy, uh, unemployment benefits, and the rest. That's the question. How do you finance that is, depends on, it's a good question, but it's a domestic question. And the notion that there is a sort of silver bullet uh, like uh, the tax on uh, planes, uh, which uh, Chirac and a few others uh, wanted to address uh, climate change, or whether everybody could put a 1% uh, custom duty. I mean, it's a tax. And a 1% custom duty is a tax of 1% which the consumer will pay, with the negative impacts which 
increasing a consumption tax, which is what a custom duty is, has. So I don't think there's anything very new in that, uh, but you're absolutely correct. We have more of a problem than the, the one we had before because of the characteristic globalization, because of technological changes, because of digitalization in addressing this loser-winners problem, plus, of course, the reflection of this in uh, public narratives. As long as we leave a sort of free field uh, for populists uh, to uh, scapegoat foreigners, uh, uh, we will have more than a tax problem to solve. Um, I just want to add the, the following. Um, they, even though I have you know, phrased it as a tax on imports, but you know the incidence of the tax, the burden is actually shared by exporters from the other side. If you really think about it, it's not entirely imports. But you might ask, why an import tax? Why tax imports? And the idea is actually a very simple one, because it's the buyers of the imported goods that benefit they are the beneficiaries of the trade. I mean, similarly, they are the, the exporters are the beneficiaries of this trade from the other side. So properly speaking, those are the winners. And in some sense, you really want to, you don't want a general tax on everybody. You want to take from the winners and compensate the losers. That's the idea. It's not a general tax. Otherwise, you could just increase the income tax or whatever. So it is really the idea, basic idea is to, get from the winners a little bit. I mean, if imported shoes can be 5% cheaper than manufactured locally, um, surely 1% or half percent is not above, <laughs> is quite a reasonable price to pay. Okay, I, I think we can uh, open up the discussion already. I'm sure there's lots of interest for, to ask questions um, and so on. I already saw that um, Vice President Katainen has uh, asked, wants to ask a question. Okay, thank you very much, Brookle, for organizing this very important and interesting event. Thanks very much for panelists for your very, very interesting contribution. Just a couple of uh, comments and uh, you, can, you can keep them as questions too. Uh, first, uh, I'm amongst the other things in responsible of high-level economic dialogue with China. I'm representing European Commission here. And um, we are uh, just to exchange our, when talking about investment uh, agreement, we are exchanging the proposals from both sides by the end of the year. And hopefully we can, we can uh, move on from the beginning of next year in this front. I do appreciate your, your uh, views on, on these issues. Last year, China invested in Europe close to 20 billion. It's many times more than, than Europeans invested in, in China. And it, there are, of course, many reasons for this, both, both size investments. But the one of the reasons is that European cham Chamber of Commerce in, in China said that the attitude in China is getting a little bit more negative towards foreign investments than before. But this is just one of the stories. There are, there are of course, uh, many others. Uh, I just wanted to comment on uh, Pascal's uh, point, which I very much agree on, um, on trade policy and how it's perceived at the moment in Europe. Um, there's a great illusion that, for a, uh, that the trade is a reason for uh, uneven distribution of wealth. 
look at the Nordic countries, Sweden, Finland, uh, Norway, uh, Denmark, they are just examples of the countries in which the government role is very significant in the economy, close to 50% or at least above 40% of the economy is public. And those are uh, the most kind of generous welfare societies. And this is only possible because of free trade. Those are the countries in uh, which even labor unions are in favor of TTIP today, which is highly unpopular almost everywhere else. So it's a matter of political, domestic politics, how you distribute the wealth. This 1% uh, import tax is interesting because it would solve the EU's own resources problem. In that sense, I could support it. <laughs> otherwise, uh, otherwise, I'm a, a little bit uh, skeptical. But uh, coming back to this um, uh, trade uh, sentiment in Europe, I'm deeply worried about populism around this issue. We are in a moment where only few governments are supportive publicly and strongly uh, on trade policy. And um, there's an opportunity or negative opportunity that uh, Europe will surrender without a battle. If you, look at, uh, if you look at the opinion polls, people are not that much against free trade. But it, it means that governments, especially the governments, member states, should start defending them, should start telling what's the truth behind trade agreements. We need them more than probably ever before. All right, th thank you. I, I think that was perhaps more of a comment, so let me collect um, also a few questions. So I see the gentleman here. Uh, thank you. I'm Thierry Apotheker. I'm the head of a research group in France. I have three very short but provocative questions. One is on the investment treaty, on the reciprocity side. How do we do when as you said, Mr. Lamy, 50% of the economy is state-owned, with full access to state-owned banks' credit, with a very low cost of capital, therefore in an unfair position to invest abroad compared to European investors. Second, a lot of observers are now starting to fret about the possible significant economic shock or adjustment in China, certainly not before the next plenum of the political party and the change in the Politburo, but after that. And this, many observers, again, it's a likelihood, not a central scenario, but the likelihood is that you would have a sharp growth shock, probably accompanied by a significant depreciation of the currency. So how do we prepare in terms of strategic relation with a moment where, again, it's not a central scenario, but it could very well happen that all of a sudden there is a crisis in China. And last but not least, how do we view EU-China strategic relationship with the other Asian nations, considering the relation of these nations with China? So how do we articulate a strategy with China versus strategy with Japan, strategy with ASEAN, strategy with India? Thank you. I think these were very, uh, three very pertinent questions, so let's, let's take them and then uh, move on to, uh, to uh, other, other uh, uh, um people in the audience, uh, so one on the state-owned enterprises uh, and the fact that they have easy access to funding and therefore competition is distorted. Second one on, uh, on uh, well, you already know that. Yeah, I mean, on state-owned enterprises, you're absolutely correct, and I think I remember I mentioned state-owned enterprises as obstacles to such a grand design. And it's no coincidence that uh, in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, the Americans have made sure that there are strong anti-SOE disciplines, 
And by the way, this is one of the reasons where, because we're part of the Chinese side now, is advocating that China should join TPP. A number of Chinese high officials say, uh, well, the discipline there, we'd better subscribe because that's the only way we are going to get there. I don't think it will work because, as I said, I think it's, it's a question of power game between the SOEs and the leadership of the party. And that's probably one of the reasons why the anti-corruption campaign was so violent in some cases, which was to try and discipline SOE leaders who were one of the main nests of, uh, of corruption. So it's, it's an issue. And long term, I don't think China can become a, let's say, responsible economic and political stakeholder of a proper world order with this SOE system. As, by the way, I do not think, uh, and I did not mention this in my obstacle because I wanted to be sure, that the turn that the Chinese uh, leadership has taken on uh, control of the digital part of the economy is compatible with a normal, global, reasonably uh, open uh, market system. The, uh, uh, I think the SOE uh, enterprises uh, will actually will survive for a long time. I mean, you know, you know. But I think the important thing is really not whether they are state-owned or not; it's whether they operate uh, on basically market principles. I think those are two different things. Ownership is one thing, but whether they operate on market principles. One thing that that I have actually uh, proposed, but uh, uh, you know, hasn't really been accepted, is to actually uh, to have separate streaming. You see, the problem with SEO enterprises is that you have people who are their CEO for a few years and they go back to being a minister <laughs> and, and vice versa. So if you actually have a streaming system, namely that once you join an enterprise, there's no return, okay? In that case, you can separate the pay and compensation everything and work on market principles. You know, if you, you know, if you, if you make losses for five years in a row, you'll be fired, and you'll never get another job <laughs> in the in the political system. Right now, that's not the case. And and the other thing to remember is that uh, even though I'm a CEO of a state-owned enterprise, I want to be a minister, right? So I'm doing things not so much to maximize profits or to. <laughs> You know, or do whatever I, I'm supposed to do as CEO, but I want to do things so that I can be promoted to a minister. So the system really doesn't work. Okay, I, I agree with that. But I think the ownership part, you would, would, I mean, it's not the ownership that matters. It's really the regulation and the structure, the institution under which it operates that matters. Now, the other thing, as someone mentioned, if I understand the question correctly, is that what happens if there's a, for whatever reasons, a sudden devaluation. Um, you know, I mean, that is the same problem you would face no matter where you invest. But my advice is that always borrow locally. <laughs> okay? That's a very simple thing to do. That if you want to invest in China, borrow in RMB, right? Borrow from HSBC, <laughs> right? And, and so it devalues, your debt goes down, right? Your, it revalues, well, your debt goes up, but you know, your values go down. So, I mean, that's the way to hedge. It has nothing to do with the political system. 
I mean, if you really want to just trust the political system that there is no, not going to be devaluation, you're going to be disappointed. You know, even at you know, Brexit, oh, you know, the, the pound has gone down at the worst 20%, right? You know, I mean, so if you were smart enough to borrow in pound sterling, uh, you'll be okay. On, on the currency issue, I mean, I think we have to relook at our models. Uh, most of our models in this area date from <coughs> a time where the import content of exports was much lower than it is today. So there is, there is a totally different elasticity to trade flows uh, from uh, currency uh, variations. And what we've learned in looking at numbers for the last 50 years is that at the end of the day, currency influence, the, the valuation, the variation of currencies do not significantly influence trade flows which are shaped by structural systems. As I always said, uh, on the trade side, the relationship with your currency is like the one uh, you have when you walk your dog. Uh, you leave uh, the house at the same time, uh, then sometimes the dog is ahead, sometimes behind, but you're back home together. So, so maybe so one agree on the local currency point. I think the the costs and revenues in the same currency is always quite helpful. But on the, I think, not commenting on the geopolitical framework of approaching China. From from our standpoint, we look at and I'll come back to Belt and Road holistically. So, you know, having spent a lot of time in Asia, looking at how does the investment flow across whether it's Australia or ASEAN markets, and looking at that in, in entirety, I think we will marshal our resources to a address that whole piece. So, I, you know, I think from a, uh, an industry point of view, we'd look at it not bilaterally, but what's the entire investment plan, which I think is helpful for us, especially with a finite set of resources. What's the best place, both from an expertise and a capital point, that we can be helpful? Um, Lisa, did you want to react to the slowdown uh, yeah. in China? Uh, perhaps, um, I think we don't need to wait for the slowdown if, if we think about trade uh, impact. Because uh, so far for the last three years, Zhang Wei, my co-author is there, so she's done lots of work on that. Uh, we, we basically see a massive slowdown in imports. So, you know, we're already there in, in as far as the global economy is concerned. China, if we believe uh, the growth figures, is growing 6.5%, you know, but its imports are falling by double digits. So we're already there. We don't need to wait for, in terms of trade. Now, in terms of investment, whether the problem is the currency, I would agree, not necessarily. And the problem might be that, you know, uh, we may see the same thing that we're seeing for trade now. I a much harsher uh, market for us, uh, all the way to investment, either, as, as we already heard, this is already happening, but it could get only worse, yeah, because it's a way to protect the domestic market and, and get an even, uh, on the trade side, uh, a much bigger trade surplus when, when your economy is suffering. So basically what I'm saying is we've, we already seen the, the movie. We just have to think of, uh, by the way, just to add, China's currency has renminbi 
year to date has already depreciated 70% with, with the basket, with their own basket they've announced. So you, you don't need to you know, search for the figures, it's already there. So, so, so I think what you're saying is true, but it's in a way already happening. Um, so we just have to accelerate that moving and, and you know, move it forward. Honesto is very quickly, I can't agree more that, that we are not seeing a change in, in it. We, I could agree that uh, ownership is not a problem, but we're going beyond ownership, not seeing a change in the rules of the game. I mean, the last um, thing we know was the 26th of July, this big announcement of uh, SO reform uh, by the State Council in which basically they boil down reform to 5% of total uh, central SOE assets, which is steel and coal, that's what it is, where we hear the word cleanup. All of the rest is either mergers or even strategic sectors. So there's no sense really of, of a change in my opinion. So we are worried about reciprocity because of the, you know, the rules of the game, uh, be it because of ownership or beyond, i.e. their own behavior. I don't think, we need to take it that that investment agreement will have to be under these rules of the game because there's no way they're going to change them anytime soon unless we wait for 20 years and, and I don't know what's going to happen. But that's what we have. That's what we have. All right, so I have the gentleman there, then the gentleman here, and then James. Please, you're first. Uh, Gerhard Stahl, Peking University and College of Europe. My question relates a bit to this debate about open market. As an economist and as a German, obviously, one is almost by nature for the benefit of an open market and an open society. But if one now looks a bit more carefully, to the situation nowadays, do we not to have uh, do we not to have to accept that the games are changing with a big partner like China, who has an industrial policy, who has a political system well established with a five-year planning in and with strategic industrial policy, and he builds up national champions like some of our member states have done in the past when they still have been developing countries. And so, so now the European Union, not having an industrial policy, wants to engage in a strategic partnership with a partner who has a strategic industrial policy. And we want and we need reciprocity. And the European Chamber of Commerce, in all its reports, underlines the necessity. My question, this is then a question to the Commission and to member states, is the European Union able to build up its own industrial policy to have a dialogue with a partner who has this policy? Because there are two options. Either to say to the Chinese, market economy, change, become like a European country, which is an illusion, or to say, we have a strategic partner with an industrial policy, we have a regulatory competition we not only have a competition between good companies, we have a competition between political systems. And therefore, Europe must build up its instruments to compete in this new ball game. And therefore, maybe the rhetoric, the traditional rhetoric for free trade has to change because otherwise people won't trust us. Okay, so the gentleman here, can you pass it on? 
thank you very much, Rahul Ghosh from Moody's. I, I had a very similar point to the, the salient ones raised by the gentleman to my left, but more from an investor perspective. So when we look at a lot of the M&A activity going on, it is very much debt financed uh, uh, with large SOEs. And if we looked at those SOEs balance sheets in isolation, a lot of the times they're very overstretched. Um, and so it's really a question of trying to rationalize implicit and explicit government support. And that's something, obviously, as a rating agency, we do all the time. When a lot of that, when we look at the capital structure, and I, I won't mention deals, but when you see a lot of that debt potentially being put onto the, the, the target um, uh, uh, company in Europe, um, and, and a lot of times, you know, you know really having a, a major impact on their balance sheets, do we then start, need to start thinking about you know, implicit government support for European companies as well. Uh, I'd like to understand how that works from a regulatory perspective or, or thoughts that you might have on that. Thank you. So, so finally, we can have more state aid in Europe, right? <laughs> Please, James. Uh, thanks, James Cantor, New York Times. Um, I understood very clearly that, you know, a partnership between Europe and China would bring together 1.9 billion consumers, uh, two-thirds of the world economy, is clearly a strategic economic element to this. But there's another dimension to strategy, and that is the peaceable nature of the areas around Europe. It's been such a, a difficult thing for Europe recently. What about, if you have one belt, one road, what about uh, the idea that the neighboring areas around Europe will benefit from a democratic, uh, 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 will get a kind of greater degree of democracy, would that lead to stabilization? And are there other strategic considerations behind one belt, one road that would be more of a sort of political and strategic nature that would ensure a peaceable future for Europe? Thanks. So the gentleman behind you, can you just give it behind? Um, <coughs> Fraser Cameron from the EU Asia Center. I think the politics have really been downplayed by the panel. I mean, let's look at the deteriorating image of China amongst European governments and public opinions. Nobody's mentioned human rights so far. Nobody's mentioned China's aggressive behavior in the South China Sea and the difficulties we've had getting a common position on that. Nobody's actually mentioned Hong Kong, what China's doing there. Nobody's mentioned that um, she has been visiting Poland and the Czech Republic three days each in the last few months to try and obviously divide and rule. Nobody's mentioned how quickly politics can change. For example, look at the difference between Theresa May's approach to China and David Cameron and George Osborne's. So the politics plays a pretty big role in all this, and particularly with one member state, and that's Germany, because Germany does more than 50% of all EU trade with China. So, given the slide in the image of China in Europe, and given the problems we have of getting a common EU position on China, are we ever going to get a deal with China? That's an easy one. And then there is the gentleman there with the... Thank you very much. My name is Wolfgang Pape, formerly with the Commission, now associated with SEPS. Uh, I wonder how all the initiatives by China, in particular looking at AIIB, uh, the BRICS Bank and others, are really sidelining the multilateral system, the established system as we know it, 
nation system, as I would call it, or is it just an opening up of the system, which I would then call omnilateral, because it could open up to others as well, other stakeholders, which are not involved yet beyond the nation and stakeholders, even like private companies and NGOs, of course, civil society. Is this a chance now? Is it an opening up, or is it just sidelining and a parallel system that's coming up? Thank you. Professor Linson from the MNRC Nepal Network. Uh, a short question, if I may. Um, yes, before, I'd just like to say that I received an official invitation from Professor Chi Fu Lin to China to discuss the new capacity building program. My short question, uh, can China trust an EU plagued by chronic internal EU institutions and external member states' dysfunctions? Thank you. Okay, um, yeah, I'll let Larry answer the last question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on, on conditions for open trade to work with China and with others, but I recognize China is no uh, trivial example. Again, let me repeat, open trade works because it creates efficiency, because it reshuffles uh, the allocation of production factors at a cost, which is the difference between winners and losers, which is a local cost because the overall uh, sum is positive, okay. Which is why for this to work, you need very specific conditions to be there, which is the difference between what I called the Geneva Consensus, and I wrote a book about the Geneva Consensus, as opposed to Washington consensus. And of course, industrial policy is part of that, like a number of social policies, as well as rules, which very often are not there. When I was DG of WTO, and even now, I'm often asked, is China cheating? Which is what people have in mind. Huh? Media are like, you know, is China cheating? And my answer is not really, but China is using a lot, a part of the system where there are no disciplines, like subsidies, for instance. As we all know, the, the stitches of the net of trade rules are very narrow for import tariffs. They are very wide for subsidies. And I've always said, including when I was digital with you, there's a huge mistake by Europe, US, and Japan together not to have pressed China to accept a tightening of multilateral trade rules on subsidies. So these, these are things which should be done. It's exactly like public procurement. The, the notion that China, 15 years, after it joined WTO, is not yet part of the public procurement, that's a joke. And US, EU, and Japan are the ones to blame. They haven't done a priority of addressing this problem. And the reason why they didn't do it on subsidies, for instance, is because their lawyers told them, oh, 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 be careful. Huh? If you strengthen multilateral trade rules, 
maybe some of our subsidies will become illegal. But you know, that's the difference between a mice and an elephant. So you're absolutely right. These conditions need, need to be there. And this entails, in my view, quite a number of changes. Uh, on, on your excellent question about impact on the EU uh, neighborhood, let's say, geopolitical, uh, more sensitive uh, part of the world, you're absolutely correct. The One Belt, One Road is a very interesting initiative. And my answer has always been, EU needs to do the same with Africa. EU needs a one belt, one road initiative with Africa in order to provide for a structure of infrastructures that paves the way for a uh, future more uh, <coughs> structured uh, relationship. Uh, finally, I, I agree with uh, Fraser Cameron that uh, uh, there is a political side to that, uh, absolutely agree. Uh, but it's precisely because there is a political side for that that a deal with China needs to be considered. Because not dealing with China might, might create a situation where China will deviate even more than it does from what we think is a normal uh, human-based uh, dignity uh, uh, market uh, system for the future. So it's, you know, it's always this choice you have. Huh? Either you try and play with those who want to move the system in what you believe is the right direction, or you fight. And I totally recognize that's a strategic choice. And I think on the obstacle I mentioned to an EU-Chinese partnership, the differences of feeling uh, between various member states uh, are part of the problem. Um, okay, I I'll just selectively <laughs> take on a couple of questions. Um, there's a gentleman that asked about AIIB, but AIIB is actually a multilateral organization. It has 60, 50, almost 60 members, a lot of European members, and I think everything so far indicates that it would actually be, be a well-run organization. Um, but the, but, but you know, the, the, uh, the reason, the need for launching AIIB in some sense is really because the current multilateral system um, does really not want to make room for Chinese participation. You know, when the Asian Development Bank, when Mr. Kuroda went to uh, become the governor of Bank of Japan, that actually is a great opportunity for Japan, U.S. to go to China and say, look, um, let's rotate the head of the ADB, <laughs> right? I mean, there's no logic why it should be Japanese all the time. Okay, I mean, China can increase the capital, so let's just rotate it, you know, and, uh, and maybe still let the Japanese come first, <laughs> right? I think it would have solved the problem. But instead, um, you know, someone was appointed right away, which well, someone would like. I, I like Nakao-san quite a bit. I know him quite well. So, but nevertheless, I think, I think that's an opportunity gone by. But, you know, AIB has one positive effect, and there's a U.S. Congress quickly passed the reorganization uh, rules for IMF and World Bank. You know, it, it's, uh, you know, these organizations decided that, you know, long, long time ago, but the U.S. Congress refused to ratify it. 
Okay, so finally, that actually got some action. So I think it's not so much that China wants to do things unilaterally, okay? But I think we must really think of ways of in, engaging China on a multilateral context. I mean, if you exclude China from the, you know, uh, I think that's, that would be the result, all right? Um, in this regard, I, I really agree with uh, uh, Mr. Lamy. Um, on peace in the area, I, I, I think the uh, one by one road to Africa from Europe is actually a great idea. Um, my personal thing is that to solve the refugee problem today, okay, um, you really need a UN force, you know, uh, a peacekeeping force, to just enforce a peace ceasefire in place so people can stay, they don't have to run. As long as the, the war goes on, um, you know, people are going to run, and we have no right to stop them from running. All right, so you really have to make the, the place habitable, and I think the only feasible thing to do is to just put some troops in, cease fire in place, you know, and, and let it happen. You know, and I think that's the only way to do it, so that people can begin to come home, refugees. Uh, I think otherwise it will go on uh, for years and years. I don't see an end to it. Um, it's very, really, very sad. Um, I want to make one point that is actually uh, 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 should be obvious. You know, the, what, what globalization has done is to realize what Paul Samuelson, you know, many years ago wrote a paper called Factor Pi's Equalization. What, what does that mean? It simply means that if you have no transport cost is opening, the wage rate of the unskilled entry-level labor will fall to the, to, the, to the lowest possible. Okay, you think about it, that's what's gonna happen, right, if there were no transport costs, because the people with the lowest, uh, no skills, low, they would get all those jobs, okay? And that's really what's happening. That's really what's happening in America, right? Maybe uh, also in Europe as well. And that is, uh, you know, these jobs migrate. And you know, there's no reason to pay an operator, telephone operator, any more than you need to pay someone in India to answer the phone. And that's what's happening. You know, Indians are answering the phone, right? So, um, so I think that really has to realize is that it takes many forms. Trade is just one form, right? But outsourcing is another form which really drives down wage rates in developed countries. And it's inevitable once you have globalization. So you really need to think through you know, do we, how much globalization do we want? How much free trade do we want? I mean, they all have both very positive effects, but also create losers. And we, I think we really need to think through how to compensate these people because these are the people who support Trump today. <laughs> maybe some of the people who support supported Brexit <laughs> and maybe other things to come. So, so I think politically it's untenable for us to pretend that this isn't happening that we don't need to do something. I think we need to do something. So, so just maybe on the, the question from Moody's, um, I, you know, I, I think my numbers aren't current, but if I think about the amount of capital finance here versus the US, there's a, a large discrepancy. So I think the question is where are you bearing the risk? I don't know the examples that you're speaking of in terms of the consolidation. We, we would certainly look at it holistically. I do think the, ensuring you have the expertise around capital finance raising on both sides. 
so you know, in, in terms of where the uh, finance is coming from Asia, and I actually think you do see growth in capital finance as a vehicle as opposed to you know, the standard debt that's sitting on, on a bank's balance sheet. The, the movement, and again, the, the numbers aren't fresh, but the Europe movement has been moving away from you know, solid debt only into a capital finance. The US, I think, was a, an earlier trend. I think that's the only way that you can better share that risk. Um, I don't know, the, again, the examples that you're speaking of, but having that expertise to have deep liquid capital markets that are facilitating better risk sharing. So. On that very same point, uh, I think you have a very good point on the fact that we look at China's money into Europe, for that matter, anywhere else, but let's focus on Europe. And within that, they're basically using their massive reserves to just come and buy. Actually, no, these are leveraged buyouts. They're not using the reserves for any matter to do that in very, very, in very, very small amounts. So, and and they're using offshore markets to do that. So, you, I think you have a very good point for policymakers in Europe because, you know, what's going to be the final uh, the situation of those target companies if that's what they're getting, and I leave it there. But I, I do think this is something to explore that is very, very important. Um, on the, the more general and, I, and their uh, issue, I think very critical question as to what model to follow. I think an extrapolation of today's reality would lead us to let's beef up our industrial policy and let's go with all of our, you know, if we could, yeah, because we're many countries here and they have very different views about this. But um, say we could, that would be the extrapolation of today's reality. However, there is a major structural change happening in, in China. One, of course, is rebalancing, which opens opportunities to Europe that uh, are not yet really open now, but we hope there will be one day. And the key to that door, to opening that door, to me, is China's weakness. So let me rephrase what I'm trying to say is that, yeah, we think of, you know, an, an overwhelmingly powerful China buying everywhere, we would think, well, that's never going to happen. They never open their markets. But if one day they come to realize that the return on assets have gone down from something of the order of 5.5% for the total economy to a bare 1% today, they may have to, they may feel forced to change. Once that happens, I think that's where the opportunities for a more, you know, like balanced dialogue, dialogue starts because it comes from the fact that we may not like our uh, naive free trade story either and we can, you know, bring some uh, industrial policy uh, flavor to that, but they may also be more akin to something different. I think that's where we could have a truly balanced strategic dialogue, but that's comes at the time where China has kind of felt the consequences of, of a very unbalanced growth model that no matter the rebalancing, I actually don't think that there is time for them to uh, rebalance without feeling the pinch uh, in terms of this very low return on assets that is dragging the economy. And that's, that's where they may say, you know what, um, it's time to think something different. And, and that's where we could have this dialogue uh, in a more, you know, balanced way. So I, I leave it there. Okay, so, so basically the rebalancing is the precondition for um, uh, a serious um, discussion open, on, on... Open rebalancing. Open rebalancing, I would add that word. 
All right, so that uh, may still be a few years ahead. Anyway, so um, let me thank all of uh, uh, you in the audience and all the panelists for their wonderful contributions. It's been a great discussion on an important.